Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida each week at the Florida Phoenix, floridaphoenix.com. You can read Craig's latest column about the environment and the state of conservation around Florida. This week's column, Craig, particularly dispiriting, comes from the panhandle, but it's a, a story being repeated countless times throughout the state. Sure. And I just this was just a very extreme example where the Santa Rosa County Commission, they they have been allowing developers to go in and clear cut hundreds of acres of property, you know, cut down every single tree, every bush, mm-hmm. everything out there, and then, you know, level up the land with red clay that they've dug up. And it just, you know, the as far as the developers are concerned, this is a cheap and easy way to throw sure. in a bunch of houses and keep going. And what they what what they're not considering or what they don't care about is the people who already live there, who live nearby, now suddenly all, when it rains, all that stormwater, it can't soak into the ground anymore. Instead, it floods their houses, floods their roads, floods their yards. Mm-hmm. And so more and more of them have been showing up at the county commission meetings to complain. And the county commissioners are like, well, the developers got property rights. We can't do anything. So there was supposed to be a change in the land development code for the county. The county zoning board voted 10 to nothing to recommend that they get rid of clear cutting, that they specifically ban it and force developers to save uh, a certain amount of greenery on each property. Mm-hmm. And the commissioners voted that down four to one and said, nope, we prefer to let, we're going to let clear cutting keep going. So in the column, I joked that they had inspired me to write a new poem uh, that starts out, I think that I shall never see a, a county as hostile to a tree. So, <laughs> yeah. And it is a dramatic example, but it is not specific to that county. And boy, talking about land development codes and going to zoning board meetings and county commission meetings. I remember our our episode with uh, Jeff Vandermeer and we talked about how important it is for local citizens to keep an eye on those boards and those commissions. And it really is. And and that's something that I've started doing more. It's tedious. It's time consuming. It's confusing. But and a lot of times what you do makes no difference. And the only way to change it is at at the ballot box. This, however, was a particularly stunning example of siding with development against residents, against common sense, against your zoning board and essentially throwing up a middle finger to everyone and saying they're wealthy They've got rights to their property and whatever happens to you, nah. Well, and, and the amazing thing to me was that they, the commissioners put this at the very, very end of their agenda. Yeah. Seeing that they had 100 people there to talk and they said, well, we're not going to take this up till the very end. And as a result, you know, it was a nine hour meeting. Some of the people didn't get up to speak until after midnight. Right. Which they, is, they, again, it yeah. was just an attempt to take away the voice of the, the public. Plain right, and simple. Right. It was so outrageous. One of those zoning board members actually got up in the middle of the meeting and said, I've had it with you guys. I work hard to to, to mm-hmm. study these issues and bring you recommendations and you pay no attention to it. I quit and yeah. actually just quit on the spot. Yeah, I mean, that's like a cinematic kind of um, Jimmy Stewart moment or, yeah. or, or something. A re- an extraordinary example of how development 
runs this state. And of course, developers want a clear cut because it's cheaper, it's easier, it's yeah. faster. Uh, you don't have to build your community plan around trees. But like you say, you know, then you've got all the runoff problems and you don't have uh, the ecosystem services of purifying the water, purifying the air, right. noise pollution, all of these sort of things. Of course, developers want to clear cut everything because it makes their life so much easier and cheaper. And county yeah. commissioners across the state allow them to get away with it at the detriment of the mm -hmm. citizens who they are elected to represent. And the folks who were there to complain, they weren't a bunch of, you know, Sierra Club tree huggers. These are people who are like, you're ruining my life. You're ruining my yeah. property. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the panhandle. Yeah. This isn't both. Yeah. Okay, these aren't yeah. people who came down here from this Yonkers. Not, you know, no, this, this is not these are, County. Yeah. You know, developers have private property and rights to that property. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But Craig, what you talked about is at what point does your abuse of that property affect mm -hmm. my property? And, right. you know, here is an example of how it does. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in, in this case, and this is a thing I point out all the time is in Florida, the environment is the economy. If you screw up the environment, you're going to screw up the economy. Yeah. Well, we've got uh, another good old fashioned. Speaking of the economy. <laughs> yeah, we've got another good old fashioned scam story here. We had yes. one recently with the, the land uh, giant communities and uh, some of the developments that were uh, built around the state by huck and jive salesmen. <laughs> uh, we've had a few of these uh, great tales of prominent Florida scammers in the past. Yeah. And Lou Perlman certainly fits into that oh, yeah. category. <laughs> Definitely. Tell us a real quick uh, who he is and your connection to our guest today, Helen Huntley. Well, uh, if you were around in the 1980s, you could not get away from Lou Perlman's work, which was he gave us the boy band movement of uh, uh, primarily of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. But there were also some other bands that he mm -hmm. sponsored. He was sort of the the Svengali who pulled the strings on these boy bands then uh, and, you know, obviously made millions from it and made Orlando sort of the center of the music universe mm -hmm. for a while. And then uh, then folks like Helen Huntley pulled back the curtain and showed us what was really going on back there. Yeah, you were a colleague of hers a long time ago at the St. Pete Times, and she yes. was the reporter who exposed this incredible yes. Uh, $500 million scam that uh, Perlman had orchestrated. And that's the and, story we're and, telling today. And, and even played a role in his capture, which is that, my favorite part of the story. So <laughs> let's get to it. You were working as a business reporter at the, I guess it was still the St. Petersburg Times at the time. It was. How did you first get involved with covering the, this famous boy band mogul who uh, was doing other stuff on the side? Well, it was in um, about October, I believe, of 2006, and some reader called me up and said, well, what do you know about Lou Perlman and um, this transcontinental airlines? And I'm like, what? I know nothing about Lou Perlman. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I really did. I'd, I'd heard of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, but, you know, Lou Perlman was not really somebody that I knew anything about. And, um, of course, I'd never heard of Transcontinental Airlines. So I asked this, uh, this reader, I said, no, I don't know anything about this. So what is it? And he said, well, I made this investment with them. And, you know, it, uh, it seemed like it was working out great for a while. It's supposed to be FDIC insured and insured with Lloyds of London. And but, you know, I wanted to get some money out and now I can't seem to get a hold of anybody. And, you know, they won't you know, they won't let me take my money out. 
So I asked, just asked him if he would send me um, some information about this investment, so, you know, if he had anything. And, and then so I did get in the mail at Xerox of some of the papers that they had given them. And right away, you know, I knew that there was something wrong. Um, why, why did you know that? What, what, what was the well, red flag? There were there were several, but the first one was that it was it was supposed to be FDIC insured, and it was paying at that particular time was six point oh eight percent. When the actual FDIC insured CDs, the best paying ones were like four percent. So you know, right there, it's like, well, this is very suspicious. Uh, and then, you know, the name of the, the this this transcontinental airlines, I really couldn't find any evidence that transcontinental airlines was a real thing. Uh-oh. And then the number <laughs> yeah, that's three a red was, <laughs> was was this uh, they called this investment the uh, the ESA employee investment savings account, which sounds sort of like ERISA you know, which was the the federal government act about retirement security. So it had this kind of ring to it. And the, and the, oh, the other thing is it was supposed to be tax deferred. Like, you know, you put this money in and you don't have to pay taxes and until uh, you take it out. Well, all of those things seem like this is not a real investment. So that it was one of those things where it, it, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, it just, this is just not real. At the time, there, there was a big problem with insurance agents in the state selling what were actually unregistered securities. They were all kinds of notes in particular. Uh, and in the, for the most part, they were things where they would promote them as guaranteed or safe or whatever. And they would be, uh, they were called this because they were secured and they had as their security things like ATM machines and my favorite pay phones. You know, you can imagine <laughs> what those pay phones were worth when uh, you know, it went about. But, but that was a thing that was going on quite a lot. And they were advertising, you know, in the St. Pete Times and other places for CDs at high rates. But then when somebody went in, they didn't get a CD. They got a promotion to buy this other investment. They said, well, we could get you a CD, but here you could get more money. So, so I was kind of alert to a, a suspicious things like that going on. And the, the, the insurance regulators were really doing very little about it. So that, that, that's all about why. Was- regulation in Florida? What? <laughs> can't believe it. Uh, oversight. Uh, okay, you pick up this story in 2006. Who was Ron Perlman before then? Lou Pearl. Lou, Lou Pearlman, Pearlman. I'm sorry. Yeah. So this was in 2006. So my first, um, the first story actually didn't run until December because you know I had to get all the information and look into it and doing my other stories at the time. Lou Pearlman started out in Queens, in New York, you know, borough of New York. And he um, he was just a kind of little kid, you know, growing up there in a family of his father was a dry cleaner. His mother was a school lunchroom aide. Uh, they lived in a one bedroom apartment in, in Flushing, New York. Uh, and uh, this will give you a little clue about how they doted on him as an only child. They had a one bedroom apartment and he got the bedroom oh while my. his parents slept on the pullout <laughs> couch. Oh, my. 
<laughs> and and it was kind of like little Lou could do no wrong. From an early age, he was he was very pampered and he was known for his creative uh, storytelling uh, <laughs> and cheating at childhood games, things like that. Actually, Lou was interested in the music business, actually, from the time he was young, because his first cousin was Art Garfunkel was like 13 oh years older oh and, um, and he was, so he looked up to him and, you know, he had this idea of maybe someday I could be famous like my cousin art. So I think that was what part of what he was really looking for in his life. Lulu was to get fame and adulation and, yeah. and the way that he thought that he could do it was by having a lot of money and living this big time lifestyle. But when he was, when he was a kid, his friends at first, you know, didn't believe him when he told them that Art Garfunkel was his cousin. Uh, mm -hmm. But then when Art sang at Lou's Bar Mitzvah, they knew. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. He is connected. <laughs> so and he did, you know, drop Art's name uh, a good bit among people. So which helped him with his investment scam. You know, Art never said a word to the public, as far as I know, to any reporters or anything about Lou. But he did, you know, appear in a little video for Lou's um, 50th birthday party, for example. And then I think he had a little cameo in Lou's movie. Lou did make a movie, by the way, called Long Shot. All of his friends had some kind of cameo role in. Oh, my. <laughs> Long Shot. What was the what was the plot? Um, well, I know part of it was Lou had a role himself in which he played a, a police, a policeman who was involved in uncovering some kind of a scam. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> so, so this movie was not a great success. I read that he they spent 20 million to make it and they made oh about two million on it. <laughs> Wow. I guess it was a long shot to make any money, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I never, I never saw the movie. Uh, I did see the 50th uh, birthday uh, video. <laughs> I actually went up to uh, to to Flushing and uh, and talked with a guy who had been his friend from the time they were little kids together. That's where he was, and he and his friend, whose name was Alan Gross, who's also died. They looked out on the Flushing Airport from their apartment. They could look out the window and see the mm. airport. And they saw uh, blimps coming and going from this Flushing Airport and got interested in blimps. So when they were, um, you know, like in high school, they they would go over to the airport, talk to the blimp people and got involved in blimps. So that was sort of that's where Lou got into business. I guess the business world was with blimps. Like, and he what, actually, like the Goodyear, like the Goodyear blimp, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, like the Goodyear blimp. Mm -hmm. So his so his first major business of any sort was something called Airship International, which was um, his advertising blimps. So he would buy or lease blimps, and then he would get uh, companies to pay him to put their advertising on it. And he actually had, you know, some some you know name type people that would pay him money. Uh, Jordash was the first one, the Jordash jeans, if you uh, remember mm -hmm. them. Yep. Yep. Uh, and uh, and that blimp like immediately crashed as soon as uh, it took off. <laughs> an omen, <laughs> then, an omen of the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he had Metropolitan Life and McDonald's and, you know, some other, you know, real, uh, real companies that were paying him. 
But as it turned out, the main benefit of being in the blimp business for Lou was they would crash and he would collect on the insurance policy. (laughs) (laughs) But he had this airship company and and he actually went public and uh, it was involved in one of those um, penny stock kind of pump and dump schemes. Oh boy. And the stock got up to like $6 a, a share at one point. And, um, you know, and then, of course, eventually became worthless. But he moved the whole company down to Florida in, in 1991. So that's how he became a Florida man. Uh, moving now, why did he move it here? Why here? Well, he had come to Florida on vacation a lot. And mm-hmm. he just liked it. So I just think that, that that was, you know, the weather and all that was mm-hmm. the first reason to come. And then after he got here, he learned about the boy band business and he mm-hmm. decided that was a good idea to get into. And so then he became this music impresario that right. so then, created these so then boy he bands. decided this was this maybe was a better way to make money uh, than crashing blimps and collecting <laughs> mm-hmm. insurance policy. <laughs> You talk about the boy band and we'll jump ahead a little bit. How does how does one create a boy band? Well, how how Lou did it was uh, he ran an ad. I believe it was in the Orlando Sentinel and uh, and looked for some, you know, attractive men, young men who could sing, you know, certain ages and come Mm -hmm. and submit your uh, your bio. And he was in the right place for that because Orlando, because of Disney, was a magnet for a lot of very talented young kids. You know, I mean, just people were moving here and, or, you know, what they want that images of, you know, I'm going to get it to be in the Mickey Mouse Club or, you know, they would get mm-hmm. jobs in entertainment in one way or another at Disney. So there, it was like there was a large pool of talent. And the one thing that Lou actually seems to have been pretty good at was picking out talent as far as casting mm-hmm. um, for these bands. Um, so he decided to do it and he did, he was not a music person himself. You know, he really didn't know anything about music, but he did hire a pretty good management team, Mm -hmm. this Johnny Wright and his wife. And, you know, he, somehow they managed to line up some decent songs for the, Mm -hmm. for the boy bands. They actually began promoting them in Europe. Uh, the Backstreet Boys went to Germany and all before they came to the U.S. and all. So, so there, there actually was a sort of legitimate way of going about it. And the Backstreet Boys became a big success. If you believe Wikipedia, they're still like the best-selling boy band ever. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then NSYNC and I guess O-Town was another one. That NSYNC and O-Town and Take yeah. Five and Natural. Yeah. I mean, there were a whole string of them, but... NSYNC, of course, was came after Backstreet Boys, and they were also really big. They had Justin Timberlake, you know, yeah. uh, and then he had, you know, some individual artists as well. You know, Britney Spears was uh, connected with him at one point. Hulk Hogan's daughter, Brooke, uh, was uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> was one of the people he signed. Well, yeah, I mean, when you've got the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, I mean, in the 90s, this is the Jackson 5 for mm-hmm. a, a different generation. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Uh, TLC, it's hard to overestimate how big those bands were, how many records they were selling, the concerts, the merchandise. These are mm-hmm. nine figure enterprises each at their height, I would imagine. Uh, Justin Timberlake obviously speaks for himself. So once you have that shred of credibility, you can get anyone you want, essentially. 
Right. You know, and plus, it, it gives credibility to your other business enterprises too. True. Right? Yeah. Good point. Exactly. And and that actually was a big um, selling point for him to be able to lure in uh, these investors, even after, um, as people perhaps know the story with both Backstreet and InSync, uh, you know, they were, he was really ripping them off as well. And, uh, and collecting, you know, he made the contracts that they had signed. I mean, he made himself the sixth member of the the Backstreet Boys. So, so even, you know, even the part that they were getting, he was getting, you know, some of the band's share Mm -hmm. of the money. Uh, You know, one thing I read estimated that he got something like 37% of all the profits that went to the Backstreet Boys. He, personally collected the modern day Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. you know, and the instinct people said, you know, went at one point they were making $35 a day and, you know, <laughs> they weren't getting any money. So both those bands did sue him uh, to separate and, and get their independence. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the uh, Backstreet Boys was in, I think, 98 and the instinct was in 99 and they had to pay him off basically in yeah. order to, in order to get their freedom uh, from him. And it seems like this is just his nature. I mean, you go back and he was obviously a a, a tall, he was a liar. He was a scoundrel. He was a swindler born that way. Out of the womb, this was a huck and jive uh, snake oil salesman. And every, whether it was crash and blimps for the insurance money or scamming boy band, I mean, this was just who he was at a very molecular level. So he fit well in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the right spot to come to, right? Yeah. What was his lifestyle like here before everything came crashing down like a, like one of his blimps? Well, he he was, uh, you know, he was living the good life, you know, yeah. living large, as as they say. He he had all these businesses. You know, one thing I wanted to point out was was he had like about 80 corporations that he had set up just in the state of Florida. And they they were not all in existence, but there were a lot of different businesses. And and he just, you know, transferred money around here and there and, you know, put it in his personal accounts. He was there was no like like normal kind of corporate accounting going on here. So, you know, whatever he just wanted to buy or pay for, he just did. The, getting the Backstreet Boys and in, sync off and going, of course, took you know several million dollars just by itself of the promotion and bringing mm-hmm. all these people in. But then, you know, he was just spending money. He he had a, a really nice big you know house on in Windermere on the lake, and uh, kind of fancy neighborhood. He had Rolls Royces and and you know Mercedes. He toward the end of his his uh, reign, he was buying condos here and there he had you know in vegas and manhattan and atlantic city he had one in Clearwater. uh of course they were mortgaged up you know but uh you know he and he even made a little video at one point of uh you know lou perlman living large and showing off all (laughs) oh my (laughs) yeah it was like bragging about all of this stuff and showing it off at all so he had this free spending thing. Let's just talk about the the investment part about how he. That's was that's what I was going to mm-hmm. ask you about. That was he specifically targeting uh, the elderly, or or was it everybody he was going after? Well, it started really with people he knew in New York. I mean, back mm-hmm. before he even moved to Florida. So he was selling um, selling shares in his business in Transcontinental Airlines, and of course, 
Uh, at one point, some of some of the airship shares were actually a registered security, but he would also sell other stock that was not registered. And he was always promising people about, you know, how we're going to hit it big and, and we're going to have these public offerings and so forth. So he had and he had a stable of people that were investing with him. Sometimes they came because they really believed in the blimp business, sometimes just because they believed in him. So he had this whole thing of how he sold stuff to get money. He also had an investor in Chicago who uh, who really believed in him and who loaned him a lot of money. Over time, he loaned him about $14 million. Oh my gosh. And yeah. I wish yeah, I had and, friends like that. <laughs> <laughs> so part of Lou's, when things really began falling apart for Lou, one of the big reasons was in 2004, this guy died. Joseph Chow was his mm. name. And his family said, all right, Mr. Perlman, we want to get the money back that yeah. we've loaned you. <laughs> right. So that was that. But in, in addition to those bigger investors and the early investors who were doing the stock and so forth, he had this ESA savings program, which really started back in the 1980s, but became very big in the 90s. And that's what he sold to a lot of elderly people. He used the network of of these insurance agents who were, uh, you know, not so savvy, who were selling these unregistered notes, and they became his distribution channel. And there, there actually were not tons of them who were selling it, but some of the ones who did it sold a whole lot of it. And we happened to become sort of a central point for this because there were a couple of guys in Clearwater who sold a lot. And then there were some attorneys, uh, you know, here in Pinellas County and in Tampa who were recommending it to their clients. So here you have not only these insurance agents that people are think are, you know, must be know what they're doing, but mm -hmm. attorneys were even saying, oh, well, look, I heard about this investment and you can go and see this guy. So, so that's how the elderly people got involved. And for the most part, they were not people who really knew anything about Lou Perlman at the beginning. Uh, they were just looking for a higher interest on their on their money. The, so it was a high it was a high rate of return that drew them in. Yes. Okay. The insurance agents and the attorneys who were recommending his product were they receiving a kickback? Were they similarly snowed? What was their motivation to use this? guy who had no background in this industry and direct their clients and conceivably friends and, and longtime business partners to this product. Well, the, the insurance agents were getting big commissions. That, that's why they did it. Although they often told people that they didn't get a commission, which is, you know, <laughs> just part of the <laughs> part of the thing. Uh, you know, they all, of course, claimed that they had no idea that it was not FDIC insured uh, or that it was not, you know, backed by Lloyd's of London or AIG was also tossed around in there. Uh, and the, the attorneys who did it, you know, I think they were just snowed and they did not do their, they didn't do their due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the insurance agents, surely it's the, I guess, I don't know if it's not a, 
you would think as a professional obligation to speak nothing of the ethical or moral obligation should know better. Obviously, that's the line of work therein. If I go to a, an insurance agent, I expect that person at some level to be able to spot an obvious scam in the way if I go to a mechanic and there's something obvious, you know, there's a hose disconnected under my hood. I mean, they should they should be able to pick out the obvious stuff, surely. You would think. Yeah, you'd think. You were the invest. You were writing about investments for the paper, and that's why you got a lot of tips like this. How did you focus in on this one? Was it just the when you saw the paperwork, you knew it was real? People did fairly often call me and ask about investments, uh, but you do have to be careful. I mean, you don't. I didn't want to be giving investment advice, you know. So somebody calls up and say, you know, my broker has suggested that I buy this stock. What do you think of it? You know, yeah. I, I, I didn't yeah. want to be involved in anything like that. Uh, but something like this, that's why I asked him to send me the information so I could take a closer look at it. And it just really did look like a scam. And I had written about some of the some of the other things, some of the other unregistered note things that were that were in fact unregistered securities. It was against the law to be selling them, so I had done those kind of things. Uh, so that's what interested me about it. Uh, the fact that you know it was Lou Perlman um, after I found out who he was <laughs> <laughs> that didn't make it more interesting. Did you get to interview him at all? I never interviewed him because he didn't call me back, of course. Of course. Uh, and, and then, you know, he fled the country and he wasn't available. So I did, <laughs> the, I did see him in, in the courtroom in the federal court when he was, um, you know, brought in. So I did see him there, but I never interviewed him. He died in prison in 2016. How... Was he able to evade, like we started talking about state regulators or, or any sort of oversight, how was he, if you're talking the early 2000s, you know, he, for a few years anyway, several years, he was able to operate this enterprise. How was he able to, to do so while not running afoul of regulators or the law? Well, he did it for quite a few years. There were, um, on a couple of occasions, people who made um, complaints to regulators, to the FDIC, uh, one of them for, you know, asked about it, and the FDIC uh, and the state, they another complaint, they, they both came and asked him questions about it. And his response was, this is just, this is the Employee Investment Savings Act. So this is only for our employees. We do not sell it to the public. And he oh told God. the FDIC <laughs> that that every employee, the money actually went into an FDIC insured account at a bank. So, and, so he told and, them and they took his word for it. And they took his word for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. okay and, and, yeah. and so the money really was not going there. Where was it going? <laughs> it was just going into the, you know, various bank accounts, uh, you know, Lou Perlman personally and his mm-hmm. many of his many different country companies. I mean, he had, there was an ESA account, but then it would be taken out of ESA and, you know, put ever he needed it to be. So there was there was money being paid out to, you know, to the investors. And it was a classic Ponzi scheme in that the money from the new investors was being used to pay yeah. uh, interest payments to the old investors and to, you know, pay them their money if they wanted to uh, get it out. So, so some investors were getting checks every month. 
you know, which of course makes you more confident that, oh, this is a legitimate investment and I should put more money in and then I should recommend it to my friends Mm -hmm. and, you know, to my my Mm -hmm. mother-in-law. So it spread like that. And of course it was more higher rate than other people were getting and like, well, hey, look, you know, I need that too. At, At what time did you realize this was more than just a local St. Pete Clearwater, one guy gives you a call and is upset kind of story? Of course, I didn't really know how big of a deal it was in the very beginning, but I did. um, I did get, you know, the state people to tell me that they were looking into it so that at least, you know, I had that that they were that they were doing their own investigating Mm -hmm. and checking into it. And then, you know, once once I was talking to one investor, they were telling me, you know, the names of other investors And I didn't know, like, you know, was this mainly a Pinellas County thing because of these guys? Uh, And it turned out the ESA program was largely a Pinellas County thing. But there were also uh, Tampa. There were a number of people in Tampa, some from Sarasota and Orlando and other places. You know, I really didn't know until until the state then, you know, ended up shutting them down and all this happened. Um, How many how many investors total do you think got ripped off by him? There were somewhere uh, around 1,800, I think, was the total that they had. The total money that they talked about uh, was, I think it was probably somewhere close to um, 500 million. Oh, my word. That he got from investors. Um, He actually pleaded guilty to 300 million. uh, Oh, (laughs) So, and at the time, this was definitely one of the largest largest and longest running Ponzi schemes ever. Uh, of course, you know, shortly after uh, he was a, a, a sentence and all, we had Bernie Madoff, who yeah. was like, you know, 60 some billion. So, yeah. <laughs> so Lou looked like a piker. Well, yeah, that's, you know, 1800. I mean, that's a lot of people, obviously, even on the scale of, of Florida. And this was a, this was a national scheme, right? This wasn't just people in Florida, correct? It was national, but it was, you know, mostly people in Florida at that point. It was mostly people in Florida and the people from New York who had, you know, invested early on. Well, when you think about, you know, just doing my math here quickly on the calculator, 500 million divided by 18, that's 275,000 a person. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of money. They were, this was, this is not side money or, you know, just taking a, you know, I'm going to take my lottery money or my play money and and (laughs) give it to to this, this guy. I mean, this is, wow, that's a lot of money. Holy cow. Did anybody get their, get their money back? No, they didn't get their money, all their money back. I think they did get a few cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they had, of course, they had a big um, bankruptcy case when a lot of searching for assets. And there was, at the beginning, there was this idea that, oh, well, Lou must have been smart enough to squirrel away a whole bunch of money somewhere. And therefore, you know, it's something there to be found. Uh, but, you know, he really he spent it all. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. And you know, they were looking for things like, uh, you know, there were all these rumors that, oh, maybe he had diamonds hidden in the walls of his house. And the, uh, the bankruptcy trustee hires this, uh, you know, some radar penetrating, you know, guy to come and look oh, are for, you kidding? <laughs> look for wow. stuff hidden in the walls. And they really didn't uh, recover a lot. Uh, he did have like a, a little uh, a Gulfstream uh, jet, uh, older one. 
but that was uh, that was collateral for one of the bank loans that he had. Uh, did he use um, that in in fleeing the country, the plane? Yeah. Let me before we talk about fleeing the country. There's a couple of other things I wanted to um, sure to talk Go about. Ahead. One was the idea that he had all these successful bands. And when investors would be interested in finding out more about Lou Pearlman and who he was and whether they wanted to invest with him, he would take them to his studios over in Orlando and they might meet some of the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or they would see, you know, he had all these gold records everywhere sure. all over the walls. He had all this fancy recording equipment and all. So he definitely had all the appearances of being a legitimate business for anybody that went to that extra trouble to actually go over to Orlando and, and meet him to try to check it out. Mm-hmm. Now, the banks, we have to talk about the bank loans. So in yes. addition to ripping off investors, he ripped off a lot of banks to about 160 some million dollars, wow. and inclu- including like Bank of America, he owed them something like $34 million. So it wasn't just small time people who didn't see through him. Uh, he was actually outrageously fraudulent with, in dealing with the banks. Uh, he, he did study accounting at Queens College, and he learned enough in accounting to make up false financial statements. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask he, how he fooled them, and that's, that's how. <laughs> he had false financial statements. He had, he had false uh, income tax returns, uh, including some that he had signed uh, as the preparer, the name of a dead man. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and he had a completely phony accounting firm that he was called Cohen and Siegel. At, really? After a couple of uh, gangster types. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel. Yes. 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 <laughs> and their their office down in um, in the Miami area. Uh, was just was just a you know mail drop kind of place with mm-hmm. a secretarial service to answer the phone. Oh, so boy. if if anybody called Cohen and Siegel, you know they'd answer Cohen and Siegel. And if they wanted to speak to Cohen or Siegel, <laughs> <laughs> they would be told that he wasn't there, and uh, you know he'd call back or whatever. And then you know Lou would be notified. And then later on in the process. He actually had it so that the phone actually would ring on his desk if you called really? Cohen and Siegel. Oh, my. So would he <laughs> pretend to be Cohen or Siegel when they called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, can you believe it? And then at one point, he said Cohen and Siegel also had an office in Germany. And he even, uh, you know, set up a fake office and hired actors to be there pretending to be, uh, you know, employees of Cohen and Siegel when he had some people, investors coming by. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so wow. so his, his, you know, he, he was quite creative. He had many fraudulent, uh, you know, documents, things that he would forge signatures on. Uh, he had like a certificate, you know, from Lloyd's of London saying, you know, we are insured for Lloyd's of London and Lloyd's of London found out about this and actually, you know, sent him a letter saying, stop that. So <laughs> that's when, that's when he switched to AIG and said that he was <laughs> insured by, by AIG. Oh my! It always amazes me these these people Bernie Madoff or, or Lou Pearlman. They're like they are brilliant, no question. They all could have made honest money, but the hubris and and whatever that 
gene is that doesn't allow the rest of us to just lie as practice, as, as just lie as a habit and tell the biggest whopper and to keep all of this straight in your mind, well, I've got this number going to that account and here's the, it, it is a remarkable mental exercise to be able to operate a scam at this level individually? Did he have co-conspirators here? Or was this one guy with all the puppet strings? He had a bunch of co-conspirators, actually. Uh, you know, I think he made all the, the real decisions, mm -hmm. but he had a lot of his sort of trusted old cronies. Yeah. And he was noted for surrounding himself with, uh, you know, disbarred lawyers and people <laughs> who had people who had been in trouble with the Securities and Exchange yeah. Commission or, or other regulators and, you know, he he, he just sort he of gravitated. <laughs> he should run for president. Yeah. He should have. Amazing <laughs> how those people find each other, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, he had he, he one of his businesses that he was involved in was a, a modeling agency. And to get involved, he, he takes over this agency that's already in trouble with regulators. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if these modeling scams, the way they worked was they had a bunches of people who would just go out on the street and stop people and say, oh, you look so wonderful. You know, you could be a model. Have you ever yeah. considered? And then, you know, get them to pay thousands of dollars for some, you know, package of photographs mm -hmm. and promises that they're going to be presented to, you know, different companies and stuff right. mm -hmm. so yeah. he so he was all involved in that with people who had been in trouble previously for the same thing and uh, but I do think that he lied so much and you know all the time that he actually believed some of the things that he said I mean it, I, I just think that was kind of the way he was one thing always intrigues me and I've read a lot of books and so forth about con men and Ponzi schemers and so forth. There's going to be an end point to your con. Do, do you not prepare for that? Are you not ready for that to happen? Did, was there any sign that he knew that the, the you know, this was all going to fall apart and he, he was ready for it? I, I don't think he was ready for it by any sense. I think he was always optimistic that something else was going to come along to save him, that there was going to be, an, you know, another boy band that mm -hmm. was going to make it big. <laughs> Uh, you know, there was going to be another, you know, big bank loan deal or something. Or a uh, crash. <laughs> he, yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, and he never gave up really on his his scheming. I mean, even even after he was actually ar arrested and you know in jail awaiting his trial or whatever, he had these great ideas of what he was going to do. Let me see what did I write a little note down. Uh, oh, yeah. OK. So first, first, at one point, he asked the judge if he could have phone and Internet access a couple days a week so he could get another band going so he could get money to pay back investors. And then his other he had some other ideas. One was the second chance TV show where he was going to take um, celebrities, actors, singers or whatever, who had also been imprisoned and wanted a second chance at a career. Mm -hmm. And then another one was poker kindergarten. <laughs> that was another business idea that he had. So he, he like could never, you know, stop thinking that, oh, you know, something's going to happen. I'm going to hit it big on, you know, something else. Let's talk about him as, as Lou Pearlman, the fugitive and your role in that. Cause this okay. to me is a great story. It was a great story. It was so much fun. <laughs> When, uh, you know, when federal regulars came in and, and, you know, it's a 
we're going to shut down your business. And he just kind of left the country. And he said that he was going to, uh, you know, he was on business. He had, you know, one of the boy band guys with him and he went to some award show in Germany and he traveled around, uh, you know, just being on his own, not really communicating with uh, people back at the office too much. Although he did like send, you know, a letter to the Orlando Sentinel and he fought, he sort of filed some things in bankruptcy court complaining about things uh, and, but he took with him the, the, the what did he what did he say in the letter to the Orlando Sentinel? I hadn't heard this. So about how he was, you know, everything was going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had us one of the one of his inventions was a German bank called German Savings Bank, and so he's he said that uh, supposedly the the you know the businesses that were in bankruptcy in Florida owed money to this German savings bank. And so he had a little, you know, seal made up like a corporate seal and everything. And he filed some things in bankruptcy court because he thought that he could get, you know, a payment made to himself uh, by having German savings bank as a creditor from the bankruptcy court. So, so he, he, he traveled all over, right. You know, he went to Panama, he went back, you know, or Ireland, he, he was going around, but he finally, he settled down uh, in Indonesia, in Bali. He was staying there, staying out of the limelight in his uh, hideout. And and yet he was a, he was a fugitive at that point, right? He was in fact a, a fugitive in the, in the sense that, you know, they wanted to talk to him, but they hadn't really, you know, unsealed like a warrant from his arrest oh, as okay. I, at okay. that point. But they, you know, he was he was on the lam and they were looking for him. And one of my favorite things was that was that he was registered at the hotel under the name of A. Incognito Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> but this German, this German tourist and his wife were walking on the beach at the hotel there in, in uh, Bali. And they saw Perlman out there on the beach. And they said, oh, I think that, you know, I think that's the boy band guy, right? And then mm-hmm. they go back to the hotel and later they see him in the business center, uh, you know, looking up something on the computer. So they decided they were going to look up stuff on the computer and see, you know, was this really Lou Perlman? So they did. They looked him up and they decided it was really him based on, you know, his picture on the Internet. And they found some of my stories. So they, they said, oh, he's in trouble. You know, this looks like, you know, they're, you know, he's missing. He's kind of fugitive here. So they, the guy sends me an email, Thorsten Nyberg, and said, you know, well, we think we've seen you, Lou Perlman. And uh, he wanted to know if there was a reward. He wanted to, he wanted to get a reward. You know, I emailed him back. And uh, said, I didn't think there was a reward, but they were looking for him. And uh, I asked him if I could give his information to the FBI. And he said, yes. So I and I and I talked about, you know, could he get a picture of him? So I did. um, I did send this to Scott Skinner, who was the FBI agent that I knew who was on the case. And he replied to him sort of this non-committal kind of reply, like, yeah, well, we'd really like to talk to him and get his side of the story, you know, and all this kind of stuff, uh, but acted like they weren't actually anxious to talk to him. So then they send the FBI sends some agent from Jakarta over there to look for Lou at the at the restaurant. And Thorsten Eiberg, the German tourist, he takes a picture of Lou the next morning sitting in the restaurant 
And the two FBI guys are like in the picture. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he sent that to you? <laughs> they're sitting at the next table, you know, while Lou is uh, is chowing down. It ended up, you know, they did take him into custody, sort of. I don't know exactly how you describe the rules when it's in another country like this. But the, there, there wasn't, um, you know, a treaty where they could have extradited him from Indonesia. However, Indonesia just expelled him as an undesirable <laughs> person. <laughs> and so what was that they, problem? they escorted him back to Guam, which is an American territory. Right. And then they arrested him there and brought him back to Orlando to, uh, <laughs> to go in front of the judge. It was really a, you know, a fun story for me. Uh, you know, you just don't encounter that many outrageous things in one story. Maybe you do, Craig. You know, you encounter <laughs> a lot of outrageous people. <laughs> but, you know, usually that wasn't the kind of thing I was encountering in the, as a business reporter. Uh, so it was it was fun. I did, of course, feel very sad for a lot of the retirees who lost yeah. so much money. I mean, and a lot of cases, it was their life savings. They still, of course, had their Social Security or whatever, but that really cut out a lot of the things. People had to move. You know, they couldn't yeah. afford to live wherever they were living at the time. Some people, you know, were so affected by it that I think they died sooner than they would have. I mean, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of broken. So when you saw him make his first appearance in court, how did he look? Did he look like he was at all worried? Uh, his jumpsuit on, you know, and they wear in jail. And I believe he had a chain, seemed like, on his hands or something. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, if you're a fugitive, they tend to limit your movements <laughs> <laughs> once they catch you. You know, he didn't really seem terribly worried uh, mm -hmm. about it. You know, I think he probably was hopeful that, you know, something was going to turn up. Uh, he had a he had a public defender, by the way, because he said that he was broke. So maybe that's one of the few times he actually did tell the truth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> any remorse at any point from him? You know, I don't really think he was remorseful. I mean, yeah. I think he did make a statement that he was sorry, but I don't actually I don't actually believe that he's he sorry was. he got caught. <laughs> yeah, he was sorry that he got caught. He never really believed that he was going to get caught, and he did. But you know, it was just it was just the way that he was. Were there any changes made in the laws as a result of his his scam, or any increased regulatory efforts? I don't know that there were. You know, there were. You know, maybe, you know, maybe they have gotten a little better on the regulation of the insurance agents. Some of the people who were selling this did get um, get charged and, you know, go to prison over it. And so I'm sure they're they don't have an insurance license now, <laughs> yeah, uh, but I don't know if they really made it any stricter. Helen Huntley has been our guest uh, in the show notes. We will link to some uh, Tampa Bay dot com articles that she wrote during these, uh, this period. Uh, if you'd like to read more in depth about Lou Pearlman and the investigation and the Ponzi scheme and her reporting into it. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, helping uncover uh, many years ago this uh, scam here in Florida. Yeah, what a, right, what a thanks story. Thanks for having me. Yeah. What a great story. Thanks again, Helen. You know, Craig, listening to Helen talk, I'm reminded of how much we've, how much time we've spent recently talking about the lack of state regulation, state oversight in environmental topics. But it also calls to mind how important 
local reporters are. And, and think yes. about Helen being able to, to be just a financial reporter for the St. Pete Times at this time. Gosh, there, you know, any more that's totally unheard of, you know, environmental reporters, uh, reporters who can cover county commission meetings uh, all over, like we talked about to be to begin this episode. In the absence of state regulation like we have in Florida, it's the local reporters who bring these scams and tragedies and lawlessness to light. Absolutely. And, you know, the people who kind of sneer about, oh, the mainstream media, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you, the mainstream media, that includes those folks at your local newspaper, local TV station, local radio station that are going mm-hmm. out and digging this stuff up and, and basically doing the job the government's not doing by tracking down these unscrupulous folks who are uh, ripping off sure. poor innocent elderly people. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a, you know, that's a crucial watchdog function of the press and something that, you know, we're very blessed to have here in, in, uh, in the United States and in yeah. Florida. Yeah. And, and as these newsrooms shrink uh, across the media through consolidation and attempts to bolster the bottom line of the companies who own these publications anymore. There, there is no Helen Huntley. There, there, you know, the re- local reporter. There's no one who's going to have the time to dig into that because they obviously, you know, it's not a specific beat anymore. It's not anyone's specific job, and you know the. Reporter is also having to shoot video and record a podcast and report on a traffic accident. And they just don't have the time, the luxury of the time to dig into this kind of thing. Well, and, and not just that, but um, the new uh, new book by Julie K. Brown, the Miami Herald reporter who broke the big Jeffrey Epstein story. Mm-hmm. She, in it, she talks about how she's trying to pursue this big international story at the same time that she's being paid so little by the Miami Herald. She's having to go. She's had to go to the payday loan people so often they greet her when she walks in like she's Norm from Cheers. Wow. You know, because she's just she's she's a single mom, just barely scraping by. But she's so dedicated to pursuing the story and trying to help the victims to uh, to reclaim some justice that she stuck with it anyway. And I, you know, it's a it's it's sad that that's the way things are, but it's also very inspiring that these folks are still out there plugging away, uh, you know, grabbing these big stories and telling the public what's going on. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida.